Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm Freddie. And I'm Zoe. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. Hello, I'm Rachel Cunliffe, Associate Political Editor at the New Statesman. And joining me in the studio, I have Zoe Grunewald and Freddie Hayward. We've been digging around in our virtual mailbag and have each brought a question for us to discuss. Zoe, you can go first. What have you got? Okay, so this is a question from Craig, who says... Hello, Craig. Has the recent turmoil and churn with multiple prime ministers in quick succession given the UK an appetite for frequent change? And could that manifest itself as restricting a Labour government to a single term only? No, I think (laughs) it's the answer. I think people are sick of frequent uh, churn. Um, They want stability. They want the chaos of the past five years to stop. I think, in effect, I think you'll see the opposite. Yeah, that's... That's it. I mean, what do you think, Rachel? I think our perception of what a short-serving or long-serving prime minister is has changed dramatically. Like when I was sort of growing up, John Major was seen as quite a short-serving prime minister, and obviously he served for seven years. And after sort of the last five years, where we've had a year here, a couple of years there, six weeks in the sense of of Liz Truss. I think that level of churn is yeah. is, is kind of unprecedented. Yeah, and people are sick. People are sick of referendums. They're sick of by elections, by elections, the discussion. Brexit was the the big thing that brought about this sort of voter fatigue. I think, and I think once pay, once Labour get in, if they do get in, they'll be able to sort of rely or, or lean on that that requirement or that desire for some. Some normality. I went back and looked at when the last prime minister was who was both voted into office for the first time in a general election and voted out of office in a general election to both kind of come in and leave. And I had to go all the way back to Edward Heath in the 70s. Um, Actually, that seems to be, we think of it as the norm that somebody comes in an election and gets voted out, but it, it really hasn't been for um, much of the last kind of 50, 70 years. But even so, that level of, of churn is unexpected. And as you say, every time you get a new prime minister, they have a new cabinet and then you've got all their junior ministers and yeah. then you've got all their spas and just the cost both in money and in like time and time wasted working out what this new administration is is going to do. Like, that's partly one of the reasons why fundamental problems don't get solved, right? Yeah, and I think also, you know, going back to what Freddie was saying, I think 
when people are seeing the NHS crumble and their children's schools crumble and trains aren't working and everything's more expensive than it was and they can't afford things that they're used to. I mean, the world, the country seems to be getting worse to many people. This sort of self-indulgent infighting, changing leaders, backstabbing, all that, it does feel to a lot of people like, how could they do this when so many longer term structural problems need fixing? And I think I totally agree with both of you. I don't think people want more political instability. I don't think people want to see more leaders. Um, I think they want security. And I think they want a leader who can give that. And I think the biggest test for whether Labour will have an, a second term is how well they deal with those underlying structural issues, those underlying problems. So whether people can actually feel with a Labour government like the NHS is in safe hands, like things are getting cheaper, like their children's futures are safer. Um, and I think that will be the, the biggest test of whether Labour get a second term, not whether people get bored of Keir Starmer. Yeah, and it's sort of, I mean, it'll help them because they can basically say that we need another term, we need to revert to a a longer term focus on politics. I mean, that, and we, we hate the phrase and we've discussed it. Well, I hate the phrase anyway. Um, and we've discussed it before, but Starmer's sticking plaster politics is about uh, identifying people's malaise with Westminster politics and the, the fact or the perception that it's so short term. Um, so it all plays into what Labour are doing at the moment and what they're saying. The other thing to consider is that the Conservatives and Labour have very different ways of removing and reappointing leaders. So three of, of the Conservative Prime Ministers, Theresa May, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, were removed by the Parliamentary Party. And the Conservative Party, historically, is quite good at acting when they feel like they need to. Labour is less good at removing leaders. Or you could say it has a more democratic approach going to the, the membership and and, yeah. and that process is different. So I think you are unlikely to have Keir Starmer ousted mid-term in the way that Theresa May and, and Boris Johnson and Liz Truss were, which obviously is going to impact the, the sense of stability you get from that Labour government. I think so, particularly because the, uh, the leader's office, Starmer's office, is such a tight grip on the parliamentary party. You're not going to get the same thing you had with Jeremy Corbyn when he came in, when you had Labour MPs, in effect, ensure that there was a leadership challenge from Owen Smith. But even then failed. they, they, uh, yeah, they couldn't do it because, yeah. it because the membership re-elected Jeremy Corbyn. Exactly. So then uh, Jeremy Corbyn was leader for a long time. I mean, as you say, Rachel, that wouldn't have happened in the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party are extremely effective, increasingly reticent, but in extremely effective at getting rid of leaders when they need to. They, I think they they feel now that they've got rid of so many prime ministers in the past few years that they're going to hold off for a bit. Uh, but in the past, yeah, I mean, as we discussed earlier, I mean, they've been extremely good at it. Keir Starmer is going to be able to keep going. You're not going to see a leadership election, I don't think, uh, with the uh, membership involved for a very long time. But just going back to what you're saying, Zoe, about whether you're still going to get that backstabbing gossip, uh, Westminster intrigue, I think you're still going to get that. You're going to get that regardless. I mean, look at the new Labour years. Tony Blair was extremely secure as a leader. You still had all the, the reshuffle gossip and the Westminster uh, debates every single week. That's never going to go away. That's much more of a symptom of our, of our media landscape and the fact that we're also focused on on Westminster. But it doesn't mean that the fundamental the fundamentals of politics are going to be short term. After the break, Freddie will introduce his question. Freddie, give us a clue about what's coming up. I think Rory Stewart, Alistair Campbell, maybe David Cameron. The March of the Centrists. <laughs> 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, Freddie, what's your question? This is a question from Cormac who asks, if you're a centrist politician, how do you choose one party over another? Are you more likely to start out from a more politically distinct position and then gravitate towards the centre? Zoe, what do we think? So I had a interesting conversation recently with a One Nation Tory in the Conservative Party about why they aren't Labour or Lib Dem, because increasingly we can see sort of a convergence of one nation conservatism, some of the right of Labour and some of Lib Dems. And I think a lot of people wonder what the difference is between these parties, which I think is basically what this question's getting at. So I asked them, you know, would, would they ever have considered joining a different party? And they had some interesting reflections, actually, about why they are a conservative and not Labour or Lib Dem. So on the Labour Party, they were basically saying that for them, the Labour Party is almost too rooted in activism and opposition. They said the conservative tent is wider. So though they may disagree with some of their colleagues on the right, they're kind of more, they, they like that it's a broad church and they feel that that gears them more towards pragmatism and, and healthy debate, whereas they see Labour as having more of that kind of, those dogmatic roots and there's a bit more kind of infighting. And, and in their words, uh, you're not a real socialist, so get out of the Labour Party attitude, mm -hmm. yeah. their words. Um, but they also told me they're a conservative specifically because of their love of tradition and British institutions and Labour is a little bit more a little bit more sceptical of tradition in some ways and I think although we can see it, that that's not necessarily the case for all of the kind of key members of the Labour Party I think Labour tends to be rooted in the interest of the underrepresented where institutions might not have always worked in their best um, interests and Labour tends to be a bit more sceptical so that's one of the reasons why they felt they were different from Labour even the sort of more centrist or, or right-leaning part of the Labour Party and then when they we were talking about Lib Dems they just said well I'm not a Lib Dem I'm a Conservative <laughs> so I don't know really what that means but I do think that maybe the dividing line for, but there are obviously ideological dividing lines between Tories and Lib Dems and some of that's rooted in uh, Lib Dems being a bit more geared toward personal liberty but I think uh, for many Tories they just want a shot at government and power and Lib Dem yeah. doesn't necessarily offer that so yeah Rachel I wonder how cynical people are about this the Conservatives are seen as the natural party of government they have been in government for around two thirds of the past hundred years if you do want to become a minister why not just go to the Tories <laughs> although Nick Clegg took the opposite approach obviously he was uh, chair of the, the Cambridge Conservative Association and then switched to, to Lib Dems. Maybe he thought he had a better chance and of Liz leading Trust a went party. The other way. And Liz Truss went the other way. Uh, I think it's really interesting, Zoe, that you were having that conversation because I was having a very similar one with uh, Bim Afalami and I asked him the same things. I said, like, you're really into the environment and uh, sort of safeguarding the environment for future generations and intergenerational fairness. And a lot of these policies, they sound quite sort of Lib Dem or, or soft Labour. And he made the exact same point about the Conservatives being rooted in sort of tradition and conserving the things that are great about our country. And I asked him about the Lib Dems and he just laughed and said, what, <laughs> what do they stand for? Um, so I think it's partly that. It's also, it's got to be partly about what you grew up with and geographic traditions. If you grew up in a Labour household in a part of the country that's always voted Labour, you 
probably didn't consider conservative policies until much later in life, until sort of at least you were an adult. Similarly, if you're in a sort of home county's conservative seat, if you're interested in politics, it probably wouldn't have occurred to you to look around. I'm not sure that people shop around for parties to get into in quite that way. I think it's more about growing up in a particular tradition and then seeing if your beliefs as an adult align with that strongly enough to want to serve. Certainly when you have attempts at some kind of new centrist formation, they do not go well. I'm thinking of no. the uh, the independent group, aka Change UK, Change UK aka yeah. the independent group for change or the, <laughs> the, the, the changing group of independents, who were obviously a group of centrists, Labour MPs who quit uh, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader in, in February 2019 and then were joined by some Remainery Conservatives and they tried to form a new party for the European elections. They didn't do very well and then uh, some of them defected to the Lib Dems and some of them stood as independents and all of them lost their seats in, in 2019 and it's very difficult to remember any of their names now. <laughs> Yeah, I think, yeah, it's definitely a consequence of our electoral system. That's why the two main parties are such uh, broad churches, because going back to the uh, getting into power point, if you do want to be successful in politics, realistically at the moment, um, since the collapse of the Liberal Party, there are two options. And therefore, um, you take a broad look at what that party does. Um, are you broadly on the left? Are you broadly on the right? And then even if the leadership or the membership or some of your colleagues don't necessarily align with your views, you'll still go there because there's nowhere else to go. Uh, and that's part of the reason the Lib Dems have done so poorly uh, in recent years. Of course, they did get into government under the coalition. Uh, but since then, yeah, they've obviously not broken down the uh, two-party system that we have, uh, even though they thought they could in 2019. I also think there's a, a thing here about the kind of person who wants to become an MP, because if you want to have an impact on politics and political change, there are lots of other ways to do it. And if you have very strong, very strong centrist views, but very strong views on a particular topic, whether it's education or healthcare reform or criminal justice... There are lots of ways to do that that don't involve becoming an MP, like being an activist or going to work for a think tank or writing articles about it or doing research. The kind of person that goes, I really, really want to be an MP is probably someone who is a bit more tribal because to take that course, I guess you you sign up for going with a party that you might not agree with on anything and that might change quite radically in the time that you're doing it. I think the time between takes people sort of 5, 10, 15 years to go from, yeah, I'd quite like to be an MP and actually winning a seat. The party can change vastly over that time frame, which I guess you, you have people in Parliament now who might have views that are aligned much more closely with various individuals in other parties but they've they've served their party for so long that's kind of where they are that's their tribe and of course there are some MPs who virtually don't fit the mold at all so someone like Lee Anderson who is you know working class grew up in a labor household was a labor councillor for many many years then became a conservative MP and is now deputy chairman of the conservative party and he gave this sort of slightly strange long-winded speech at the national conservatives conference about what led him to be a conservative and really interesting that Thatcher was his big inspiration to join the Conservative Party, which is something you wouldn't really think of when someone's grew up in a northern working class home that and has been a Labour Party supporter. But he talked about this kind of 
how Thatcherism had given a, a generation of young people hope for buying a house and for moving on in the world. And that's what kind of led him towards conservatism, which I think is really interesting because you usually think that tribal, that very specific brand of Labour, working class, red wall tribalism, he, you know, broke out of that. So there's like plenty of um, other extraneous factors that I think mean people, their political journeys change in ways we might not necessarily necessarily think of. Well, Freddie, you mentioned Rory Stewart. Um, yeah, he's been on a really interesting journey. He was uh, in the. He was sort of seen as like a archetypal Cameroon. He also comes from a very upper class family. Uh, he's also been part of the British establishment. But then he was also preaching about um, some what you might call liberal values. And I think it's worth noting at this point that the Conservative Party has been quite good in the past seventy years or so of subsuming many parts of uh, liberalism, whether it's the economic liberalism under or Thatcher or, or more social liberalism under Cameron. And uh, but I think it is worth worth noting, even though uh, that has happened, that someone like Roy Stewart is very much still a Tory. He's a high Tory. He believes in um, the traditions that make this country what it is. Um, just because he wants to plant a million trees around the country doesn't mean he's a Lib Dem. He's still very much a Tory. And that's, I also think, quite a, a Tory thing to support. I mean, the environment has been something uh, that the Conservative Party has campaigned on for a very long time. He's a good example of what I think... He's a good example of certain people in parties being pigeonholed as not Tory or not Conservative just because their views don't necessarily align. I also, going back to the Thatcher point, I think it's also a, a consequence of that, that people saw the liberalisation, you could say, of the Conservative Party and forgot that there was also this more traditional conservatism promoted by people like Macmillan and um, Disraeli and others, whereby you do focus on traditions over the free market. And when people profess those views, like, oh my God, you must be a liberal, you must be left-wing, whatever it is. No, it's just that there are competing strands within the Conservative Party and they express themselves in different ways. So what we're basically saying is politics is messy and complicated yeah. and there isn't such a thing as centrism as a distinct ideology and that's kind of why you don't have a centrist party and why the the factions break off in in those sorts of ways yeah i mean i definitely think there is something called centrism um i don't think it's unideological i mean if you look at blairism cameroonism what you might call neoliberalism in the past 20 30 years that's very much been an ideology um it's just been categorized by many people as centrism which they think means okay it doesn't mean that they've got ideas or they're not implementing and i think blair implemented so much i mean i think as we spoke about last week he was a a massive radical he brought about massive social change it just wasn't so much that that was socialist change it was much more uh, liberal or neoliberal um, if you want to get into that debate it very much exists it's very much exists it's just i also think it's being um it's been beaten down in the past few years it's no longer um as vogue as it once was that's one of the consequences of Brexit, but it's also a consequence of 2019. Um, and it's, I think it also speaks to some of the confusion that we now have over uh, identifying Rishi Sunak and, and what he mm. believes in. Um, the big question about, um, as I think it is for the past six or seven months, about the Conservative Party, where is it going to go um, after the next election? We've got these competing parts and we spoke about uh, that a little bit yesterday. Where is it going to go? Is it going to return to that sort of Cameroonism, that... Uh, liberal conservatism, or is it going to try and uh, absorb some of the changes that we saw in 2016 and 2019?
thanks to everyone who submitted questions. We do read them all, so please keep them coming. If you'd like to send us a question, just go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll on the episode page and leave a reply. And YouTube viewers can drop a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my colleagues, Zoe Grinewald and Freddie Hayward. We'll be back on Monday with political philosopher John Gray on the state of liberalism and modernity. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.